One of my favorite undergraduate courses that I took when I was at Gordon College was a class called Biblical Narrative. And the professor, whose name was Paul Borgman, would have us read a narrative of Scripture and then he would ask the following question. And he meant it earnestly. We had to actually script this out. He said, how would we film that? That was every class. How would we film that? And I don't know if you've ever tried to decide how you would film a scene, but the question was intended us to get to see every detail of the scene in our imaginations. Where would you stand? Who would be speaking? What would be in the background? What did it look like? He wanted us to flesh the whole thing out. It was an interesting way of doing biblical study. It kind of shaped the way I read the scriptures ever since. I started paying attention to every detail. And today I'm going to ask a similar question. I'm not going to ask you, uh, how would we film that? But I'm going to ask you a similar question. I'm going to ask, how did you hear what we just read? It'll be rhetorical. It's not a quiz. You don't have to answer. But how do you hear the words that I'm about to, hear, about to read? How did they sound? With what tone of voice were they spoken? How did they feel? So if you have access to a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Amos. We're in chapter 6 today. And we will be taking a break from our series through Amos for Easter. So we will not be in Amos for Easter, but we are here on Palm Sunday. Amos chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And I'm, I'm asking the question, how does this sound? Amos chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Woe to those who are carefree in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the dignitaries of the foremost of nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calneh, and look, and go from there to Hamat the Great, then go down to Gath of the, of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than yours? Are you postponing the day of disaster, and would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge around on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the fattened cattle, who improvise to the sound of the harp and, like David, have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacred bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the collapse of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the revelry of those who lounge around will come to an end. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of armies has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will give up the city and all it contains. And it will be if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, is anyone else with you? And that one will say, no one. Then he will answer, Keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to rubble. Do horses run on rocks, or does one plow them with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, Have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, house of Israel, declares the Lord God of armies. And they will torment you from the entrance of Hamat to the brook of Arabah. This is the word of the Lord. How did that sound? How did you imagine it was said? What was the tone of voice? Was it angry? Did Amos preach it loud? 
Was it aggressive, vengeful? Was it soft? Was it gleeful? Well, that's the difficulty, isn't it? We don't know. I mean, we can only guess. Oftentimes, when we read the scriptures, the tone of voice is supplied by us. Maybe you had difficulty hearing it in any other way than the way I was saying it. Therefore, the way we read the scriptures, the way we hear them in our heads when we read them, that may tell us more about ourselves and our own experiences than about the author's intention. We often read words like this in the way that we imagine such. I mean, how do you tell somebody that their city's going to be destroyed? How would you say it? And that's usually the way we hear it. Or maybe we've heard other people say similar things and we imagine God would say it in the same way. But how did God say them? When he brought this word to Amos, how did Amos hear it? And then how did Amos repeat it? We don't know. At least we're not certain. But Jesus does help us increase our certainty about the tone of voice that God used. Our liturgist this morning read a very familiar passage for those who've spent much time in Christian churches, especially during this season of Lent and Easter. It's often called the triumphal entry when Jesus, like King Solomon before him, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and was declared king. Today, however, I want to focus our attention on the verses immediately following Jesus' triumphal entry. So we haven't read these yet. If you want to, you can turn to the gospel according to Luke. I'm in chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, but it will be on the screen. The gospel says this, When he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, so this is right after that big scene we just celebrated at the beginning of the service. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation." We may not know how Amos heard God's words, but these are very similar to Amos's words, aren't they? And we know how Jesus said them. Did you imagine Amos's words being said with tears? With a God who was weeping? But that's how Jesus proclaimed judgment, through tears. If you did imagine it that way, you did better than I routinely have. Because when I hear words like that, I hear screaming. And that says more about me, probably, than, than it does about God. The grief of God in the midst of judgment is a recurring theme in the scriptures, another one. The first time it was revealed to us was in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. The scripture says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land, humankind and animals as well, and crawling things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Grief and judgment, tears and condemnation. Why do those things go together for God? 
Throughout my preparations for this series, I've been reading a book by the Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel entitled The Prophets, and he helped me a great deal with this question this week. Why do sorrow and wrath, grief and judgment, tears and condemnation go together for God? Because God is not indifferent to evil. God is not indifferent to evil. Heschel explains this well. Here's a quotation from the book. Heschel writes, There is an evil which most of us condone and are even guilty of, indifference to evil. We remain neutral, impartial, and not easily moved by the wrongs done unto other people. Indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. It's more universal, more contagious, more dangerous. The knowledge of evil is something which the first man acquired. It was not something the prophets had to discover. Their great contribution to humanity was the discovery of the evil of indifference. One may be decent and sinister, pious and sinful. I am my brother's keeper. The wrath of God is lamentation. Isn't that a great Lamentation means a, a mourning, a crying out, a, a, a begging appeal. The wrath of God is lamentation. All prophecy is one great exclamation. God is not indifferent to evil. He is always concerned. He is personally affected by what man does to man. He is a God of pathos. This is one of the meanings of the anger of God, the end of indifference. God's wrath is born out of his compassion. I don't know where your wrath is seated. I don't know what gets you angry. We're often angered by personal offenses, personal slights, personal harms done to us or to somebody else that's close to us. Oftentimes our wrath or anger can come from inconvenience. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. I don't know where yours is sourced. But the scriptures are insistent that God's wrath is sourced in his compassion. When God revealed his glory to Moses, Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God reveals to him, to Moses, his glory. He doesn't show Moses his face. doesn't show him the fullness of his presence, just a little bit of his back. But God uses words to describe himself. And we've, we've read these words together before. Here they are again. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Based on what we're saying, hear what God is saying about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful. That's what he put first. Compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth. Who keeps faithfulness for thousands. Who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin. And yet, wrath is born out of this, right? He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Grief and wrath, compassion and justice. God's wrath is born out of God's concern for his creation. Heschel goes on to explain in these ways, and I'm quoting him today because he says it better, I think, than I could manage to put it in my own words. I hope you agree. This is what he writes. He, God, does not simply command and expect obedience. He's also moved and affected by what happens in the world and reacts accordingly. 
Events and human actions arouse in him joy or sorrow, pleasure or wrath. He is not conceived as judging the world in detachment. He reacts in an intimate and subjective manner and thus determines the value of events. Quite obviously, in the biblical view, man's deeds may move him, affect him, grieve him, or on the other hand, gladden and please him. This notion that God can be intimately affected, that he possesses not merely intelligence and will, but also pathos, basically defines the prophetic consciousness of God. The God of the philosophers, and for many Christians, honestly, is like the Greek Ananke, unknown and indifferent to man. He thinks, but does not speak. He's conscious of himself, but oblivious of the world. While the God of Israel is a God who loves, a God who is known to and concerned with man. He not only rules the world in the majesty of his might and wisdom, but reacts intimately to the events of history. He does not judge men's deeds impassively and with aloofness. His judgment is imbued with the attitude of one to whom those actions are of the most intimate and profound concern. God does not stand outside the range of human suffering and sorrow. He is personally involved in even stirred by the conduct and fate of man. Perhaps no action of God is more revelatory of the truth that Abraham Joshua Heschel is trying to explain than God's decision to become fully human in the flesh of Jesus. This is what it means for God to be with us. He's with us. He's responding to us. He's interacting with us. He is personally and intimately concerned with the fate and the experiences of all that he has made. This is what it means to say Emmanuel. We say it at Christmas time. We sing it in our songs. But the word means God with us, and this is what it means. So why do grief and wrath go together for God? Because God's wrath is born out of the same place as his mercy. As God revealed to Moses, he is gracious and compassionate. God's compassion for the wicked leads to mercy. God's compassion on the oppressed and the victimized leads to wrath. God is not indifferent to evil, nor is God merciless to the wicked. We in the church have gotten right God's mercy to the wicked, but somehow we have forgot the oppressed. We think victims should just take it because God loves the sinner and cares not for those he sin they sin against. But the scriptures say nothing of the sort. God is compassionate to sinners by willing, his willingness to forgive. That's mercy. But he is not indifferent to the evil they've done or the suffering of those that they have harmed. That's what leads to wrath. God is gracious and compassionate, which makes, makes him both slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and willing to pour out his wrath on the wicked. Both are aspects of his compassion. But it's important to remember which comes first for God. He does not delight in wrath. He delights in compassion and mercy and doing good. How do we know? Well, Jeremiah tells us of one of many places in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. This is what the Lord says. 
Let no wise man boast of his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches. But let the one who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. God delights in doing the Hebrew words here translated into English are chesed. He delights in chesed, in mishpat, and zedekah. Chesed is steadfast love, steadfast loyalty. God delights in showing steadfast love to his people in chesed, in performing acts of mishpat, justice that is fair and right and equal. And in Zedekah, in righteousness and holiness. This is what God delights in. The wrath of God is a response to the wickedness of humanity, to the harm we do to each other and to the world. And it's aroused by God's compassion for the oppressed and the victimized, and it can be turned away by repentance. Why does God allow repentance to have that effect? Because it often can feel unfair. Because God does not delight in wrath. God delights in acts of steadfast love and justice and righteousness. He says in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 18, Do I desire the death of the wicked? Or would I not rather they repent and live? God is anxious to forgive, anxious to restore, willing to cast our wickedness as far as the east is from the west. But for those who will not turn from their wickedness, who continue in sin and destruction and bringing harm to themselves and the world and to others, God will send his wrath upon them. But as Jesus reveals to us, in tears. This is the heart of Amos' cry to the people of Israel in chapter 6 of his book. And it's the cry Jesus made to the people of the earth from the day he took on flesh to today. In Amos 6, God has accused the wealthy of being indifferent to the consequences that their wickedness and selfishness was having on the nation as a whole, and the poor and the vulnerable in particular. That's what he's talking about. They were provoking God's wrath, not because he was mad at them, but because he loved the people they were hurting. That's what was provoking his wrath. The people who were being harmed, not the people who were doing evil. God can overlook evil like anyone's business, but what he can't overlook is the harm brought to others that he loves. They were provoking God's wrath by provoking God's compassion for those their selfishness was crushing. Because of their selfishness, because of their indifference and their refusal to change their ways, the only way, do you see the situation they put God in? The only way he could save the oppressed was by destroying the oppressors because they would not stop oppressing them. God is not indifferent to evil. God is compassionate. And out of that compassion flows both his mercy and his wrath. This too is the heart of the coming of Jesus. It's out of God's compassion for the wicked that God himself took on human flesh in the person of Jesus and died for us. And yet, as Jesus proclaimed with tears over Jerusalem 
in the verses we read at the beginning. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known on this day, even you, even the wicked, the conditions for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because God is angry? Because God is full of wrath? Because God wants vengeance? No, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Because you did not hear my pleas. In tears, God proclaims the destruction of the wicked. Because if only they would turn from their wickedness, they too would be forgiven. For God is quick to forgive. Sin destroys. It enslaves. It exploits. It indulges itself. And it cares not for its effect on others or on the world. God extends his mercy that the sinner might turn. But God's mercy ends out of compassion for that which is destroyed by sin. There's a proverb, and I'm only going to do a rough paraphrase of it, but it's one of my favorites. It says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, or God may turn his wrath away from them and turn towards you. God has compassion on those who are victimized. Jesus was God's final plea to humanity to forsake sin and return to God. In the flesh of Jesus, the way of our return to God was made plain and proclaimed to us. By following Jesus with our whole being, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. By following Jesus with all that we are, we walk the path of repentance. Jesus trailblazed for us through the darkness and into the light. In the first coming of Jesus, God has offered mercy to the wicked. His compassion did that. In the second coming of Jesus, God will bring wrath upon the finally unrepentant. His mercy does that too, because he will not let the wicked wreak havoc on the innocent forever, as every tyrant has learned eventually. Like those in the days of Amos, we are often unaware, though, of the cosmic consequences of our sins. Our sins don't feel that big to us. They don't feel that consequential. Like the people in Amos's day, we're just kind of living high on the hog here. We live in Samaria. We have all this wealth and opulence. What's wrong with that? God likes to send blessings, and boy, has he ever sent some my way, right? That's how some people live. When we lust after those with whom we are not in covenant relationship, we fail to appreciate the effect that dehumanization has both on us and on those we treat as objects for our consumption. When we speak maliciously about another person behind his or her back, we fail to appreciate the ways in which that behavior feeds our own fleshly desires and selfish ambition and the way that it diminishes the value and worth of the one we cast to the dogs with our words. When we buy, consume, and hoard more than we need, we fail to recognize the way that our behavior increases our own fleshly appetites. It increases the hunger within us. It diminishes our contentment, and it impoverishes the world. 
when we speak curses and foulness at others, we fail to appreciate the ways in which we are increasing our pride and our self-righteousness, and we're feeding within us a disdain for other people in our hearts and in our souls, and that bleeds out in ways we couldn't possibly imagine. Sins are not sins arbitrarily. It's not as though God just wrote a bunch of rules to see if people would follow them and then punish them for not agreeing with them. It's not the way it works. We don't serve a God who says like some of our parents, why should you do this? Because I said so. That's not the way it works. Sins are sins in the scriptures because of the effect God says they have on us, they have on others, and on the world that he has created. And God is not indifferent to sin or the harm it brings. God loves all that he has created, and he's intimately affected by everything that is done under the sun. God delights in sending good to us. That's what he wants to do. And he's slow to anger, and he is quick to show mercy, and that accounts for much of the way wicked people get away with a lot, it seems, in the world. However, because God loves all that he has created, he will not overlook the devastation the wicked are doing to themselves, to others, and to the world forever. He will not. And this was God's offer and his warning to Israel through Amos. And they did not heed it. This has been God's offer and warning to all nations on earth in the person of Jesus. And I don't know how you evaluate things, but it does not appear to me that the nations of the earth are heeding it either. Perhaps we who claim to follow Jesus will permit God to be the God that he delights to be, that he wants to be, a God of steadfast love, a God who does justice, and a God who does righteousness in the world. I know it sounds sacrilegious to say it, but he needs our consent to be that God. Because if we refuse to turn from our wickedness, then the God he has to be is a God to rescue the victims and the oppressed, which means he has to be a God of wrath. But that is not the God he wants to be. So my appeal to us in this season, as we kind of conclude Lent, because next Sunday we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but Lent is a season of repentance, and during this season, maybe we should decide together as a people not to grieve the heart of God and to provoke his wrath for the fleeting pleasures of this world. Let's join God in his compassion by turning from our wickedness for the good of all creation, for ourselves, for the people around us, and for all the world. In Jesus, God has promised to forgive those who turn to him in this faith. Because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, quick to receive us. Sin is simply not worth the cost. It's not worth the cost to us. It's not worth the cost to others. It's not worth the cost to the world. And if none of that matters to you, at least maybe we could manage to say it's not worth the cost to God. He does not want to bring wrath. So why would we make him? Let's forget sin's momentary pleasures. That we might receive the eternal bounty of the God who delights not in sending calamity, but in pouring out blessing on his people and on his creation. 
Well, how do we know from what to turn? How do we know what we're doing that might be destroying us and others in the world? How do we know? Well, we study the scriptures. It's been preserved for us. And if you need a place to start, then start with the Gospel of Matthew. If, if that's too big and 28 chapters is too long, then start with Matthew chapters 5 through 7, where Jesus summarizes the distance between what God hoped for and where we are. And then listen to the prophets and the apostles throughout the scriptures. They knew God and they knew his word. And if we listen, we will hear his heart through them. And then there are some who look at the monumental stone that has to be moved in order to repent and be the people God's called us to be. We read Matthew 5 through 7 and we think that's impossible. Nobody can do that. We're tempted to read it like the 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who was very influential among Methodist traditions, who said it's an impossible possibility. It's an impossible possibility. Something to strive for and never to be seen. But that's not what Jesus says about his offer. He doesn't say it's too hard for us, what he's asking. Maybe you'll receive his promise in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. That's the God to which we come, not a God who is harsh and vindictive and quick-tempered and slow to forgive. That's not the God we come to. Jesus, God in the flesh, makes his appeal to humanity and says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable, the King James said easy, and my burden is light. And then later in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 to 26, when they're debating over whether wealthy people can enter the kingdom of heaven, his disciples despair that he's asking too much, that his burden is not easy and his yoke is not easy to bear. His burden is not light and he is not humble. He's mean and mean-spirited because he's saying things we don't want to hear. And this is what he says. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, remember the people in Amos' day were rich. And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they, they, they did what you and I do when we read Matthew 5 through 7. They were astonished and they said, then who can be saved? If this is what God wants, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are, even your repentance, all things are possible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But to those who truly believe in him, nothing is impossible. Not even Matthew 5 through 7. Not even repentance. Not even that sin that has so dug itself into your soul that you cannot even imagine a version of yourself without it. Even that sin. Nothing. Do you believe that? Nothing is impossible with God. Maybe in this season of repentance, we might actually believe what he has promised and turn.
and let him be delighted.